0: Hello and welcome back to Researcher Radio, your regular academic and scientific podcast that looks at research that's making waves in the wider scientific and academic community and the people behind it. My name is Joe Fenton and I will again be your host today. So before I introduce this week's guest, I'd like to remind you to leave a review or subscribe to this show wherever you may be listening. And if you've got any thoughts or comments or if there's a certain academic that you would like to appear on this show, then you can drop me an email at joseph.fenton at researcher-app.com. Okay, so um, let's move on and introduce today's guest. Today's guest is David Sidhu from the University of Calgary. David is, alongside Penny Paxman, the author of Lonely Sensational Icons, Semantic Neighbourhood Density, Sensory Experience and Iconicity. Today, we'll be finding out a bit more about both the paper... And David himself. So, David, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so before we get into your paper, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic career or journey so far?
1: Sure. I'm starting my fifth year in PhD program here at the U of or I started in September, rather. Um, and I did my master's here as well. So it's been about
0: seven years in the program
1: now. And before that, I did my undergrad at York University
0: in Toronto. Okay, so in your field in general, what is your main area of focus or speciality?
1: I guess broadly, the question I'm interested in is how we relate sound and meaning in language. So if we think about language as sort of a collection of sounds that then get associated with meanings when you come up with a word, what drives that link? And are certain links different in nature than others?
0: Okay, so your
1: paper, what is it about? Sure. So it looks at this idea of iconicity, um, and this comes back to what I talked about a second ago. It's this question of, in language, when we have sounds and their associated meanings, um, what motivates that link between them? So for a long time, the view has been that that link is entirely arbitrary, which is um, if we think about the word blue, for example, the sound of the word blue, there's nothing inherently blue about them. It's kind of this arbitrary link between a set of sounds and a certain meaning. But there's always been this sort of undercurrent, this idea that language may not be arbitrary entirely. That in certain cases, you can have these special links between sound and meaning. And iconicity is one example of this. And that's where the sound of a word conveys some aspect of its meaning. Um, And sometimes that can be more obvious than others. So a really obvious example is automatopoeia. Uh, where you have a word like meow or bang, and there the sound of word actually imitates the thing that it refers to. So there's that special iconic link, but it can also be more indirect. And that's the sort of, I can see that I'm especially interested in. And this is where, for one reason or another, the sound of a word just kind of brings to mind associations that reflect its meaning. So an example that I like to give is the word teeny, um, the sound e uh which is which happens twice in teeny people around the world seem to associate that with smallness. Like if I if I told you there were two foreign words, let's say neep and knop, and one meant small and one meant large, probably wouldn't be hard to imagine um which one goes with which, I would guess.
0: Yeah. I myself would say neep, definitely. Because obviously for me the vowel sounds make it what it is.
1: Yeah, so so people around the world tend to respond like that, that this E sound seems smaller than other vowels. And so in that way, teeny is this iconic word. It has these sounds that kind of evoke smallness and refers to a small thing. Um, And there's a good deal of evidence that these iconic words are special in one way or another. They activate distinct brain regions. They're easier to learn. Um, And so a question arises, if iconic words are so great, why isn't language all iconic? It's pretty easy to point to words like blue that, that are arbitrary, that aren't iconic. So why isn't language more iconic? And the two proposals that we looked at in this paper are that one, it might not be possibly possible to convey all kinds of meanings iconically. Um, It's easy for for a word to sound small or to sound like a a cat meowing, for example, but it's harder to sound like the concept of justice. For example, there are certain concepts that are harder to um, convey with, with uh, the sound of a word. And the other idea is that if language were entirely iconic that might lead to ambiguities. So um, another example of these associations between sound and meaning are that people seem to think that sounds like m and b evoke roundness. They sound rounder than a sound like t or k, for example. So you can imagine if, let's say, apples and peaches and pears and oranges, all these round fruits, let's imagine they had iconic names. They might be named things like nobu and nomu and muno and things like this. And you can imagine how that would lead to ambiguity, because you have these very similar kinds of meanings that now have very similar kinds of words. And if you're in a grocery store and you say, Henry the nomu, you can imagine people might misinterpret that for a nobu, uh, which might be a pair. So a similar sound, a similar meaning, you can imagine that leads to ambiguities. Um, So one proposal is that um, this is why language isn't more iconic. But the idea that we tested in the paper, which I think is is the, the crux of the paper, is that not all words, or not all meanings rather, have a lot of similar meanings out there. While something like a pear, you can think of a lot of things that are similar in meaning to a pear. Something like a balloon, for example, there are less things that have similar meanings to a balloon. So the idea we tested is that a word like balloon is freer to be iconic because it's not going to lead to ambiguity to the same extent as a word like apple, which has many similar meanings to it. Um, And that's just what we found. So we took a set of words, they were rated in terms of their iconicity in previous papers. And we found that words that were
0: more unique in terms of their meaning tended to be more iconic. Okay, so this uh, question just kind of popped into my mind as we're speaking. And it's about the word pineapple. And obviously, there was probably like historical linguistic roots behind this rather than, you know, semantical roots. But obviously, I think you'd give a a, a better explanation than myself. But I was thinking with pineapple, obviously, in English, it's pineapple. But it's a completely different word when you look at other European languages, say Italian, French, or Spanish. So I'm just curious to know your thoughts on this. Yeah, that's um, potentially. So it it gets really tricky when you think about
1: language as it might have evolved over over centuries. There are all kinds of historical accidents that might lead to certain... uh, a certain concept being named a different thing in a different geographical area. And iconicity might just be one one factor that might nudge things one way or the other. But um, like it becomes obvious when you bring up this idea of historical factors, it can't be the only thing contributing to language.
0: Okay, so iconicity is a major theme that runs throughout your paper. And obviously you specialize in this. So I'm just wondering, how can you measure... A word's iconicity. Yeah, this is a really good question. And there isn't
1: really a good objective measure for this. Uh, Iconicity by its very nature is going to be subjective. It's going to be based on a person kind of recognizing this link between its sound and its meaning. So the way that we did it in the paper was to make use of ratings that individuals had made. So there were two previous papers um, which had given participants a large set of words and had them write them from negative five to positive five, um, with zero meaning that the word sounded nothing like its meaning, and five meaning that it sounded exactly like its meaning. And these are the ratings that we use in this paper. So we're kind of dependent on this sort of subjective sense of iconicity. Um, I'm aware of one interesting look at how iconicity might be measured objectively. Um, There's a paper looking at automatopoeia for the words knock and click, which of course sound like uh, the sounds they refer to you can imagine a click on a computer kind of sounds like a click a knock at the door maybe sounds like a knock and so they recorded a bunch of knocks and clicks in the real world and when they compared those sounds to these vowels they found that these sounds that we use in words knock and click are kind of the closest we can get to portraying those sounds through through um the available phonemes so that's one very small scale example of getting at iconicity in an objective sense, actually comparing the sound of a word to the sound that it refers to.
0: Okay, and so my next question, and as ridiculous as it may seem, is about the term semantic neighbourhoods. And obviously the word neighbourhoods kind of um, shows you a, a, an overall idea of what it is, but I'm just wondering if you give a brief overview of what they actually are. Sure, so, so a
1: given word semantic neighbourhoods neighborhood is going to be other words with similar meanings. So I gave the example of apple. You can think of like pears, peaches. These are kind of words with similar meanings to apple. And the way that's quantified is based on how these words are used in language. So now uh, we made use of norms available in a previous paper. And what they did is they uh, took a whole set of words and looked at what kinds of linguistic contexts they tend to appear in. So let's think of the example, cat and dog. They're semantically related. We might say they're in the same semantic neighborhood. And if we think about the kinds of linguistic contexts they would appear in, you can imagine they might be similar to another. So cat might appear along with a word like leash, the word bowl, the word pet, for example. And these are also the kinds of words that dog might appear along with. So um, this previous paper looked at the words that a given pair of words tend to co-occur with. And to the extent that they were similar, that meant that they were closer in semantic space, that they were semantic neighbors. And then the specific measure we looked at was the density of a given word's semantic neighbors. So how many other words um, are similar in meaning to it, and then how close
0: are they in meaning to it? Okay, and so would this also be subjective as well, considering where I would map these words, so to say?
1: It's what's well, based on a large corpus of text, So, I mean, there are a couple of subjective decisions, I guess, in terms of which text to mine for these relationships and to sort of make that leap, that co-occurrence in text reflects semantic um, uh, similarity. But aside aside from that, it's it's kind of an objective measure based on lexical co-occurrence.
0: Okay. And I just want to pick out a specific sentence of your recent paper that really stuck out to me. And, um, I was just wondering if you could, uh, give me a, bit, a little bit of background on this at all. And this is when you say that the consistency in the phonemes occurring in several basic vocabulary words across nearly two thirds of the world's languages. So I'm just wondering what languages or even linguistic roots are the exception to this rule? And, um, and why is this?
1: Right. So, When it says two-thirds, it isn't necessarily that the other third doesn't show those patterns. It was just that two-thirds of the words languages were tested. But there are some cool examples of languages that kind of take the opposite patterns that we expect. So we talked a second ago about how e and smallness, uh, people tend to see that association. And that shows up in words for teeny um, and diminutive suffixes in a lot of languages. But there is at least one language I'm aware of that makes the opposite mapping. And the word E tends to occur in words for large, or sorry, the sound E tends to occur in words for large, which is really interesting. So it seems like they're making a different kind of mapping there. Um, So there are exceptions for sure. And trying to explain those is a
0: really interesting question. Okay. And have there been many studies or studies that you are aware of that look specifically at these languages at all? Uh, Not, not that I know of a lot. So the, the thing that I'm kind of referencing in my mind was more of
1: a an anthropological survey, kind of just documenting their their language. I don't know if it was a really rigorous statistical survey, um, but these kinds of things are becoming more common now. These kind of cross linguistic comparisons. So hopefully
0: they're on the way. Okay, and another another thing that I um I picked up in your paper is this uh, Maluma and Takiti effect. If I'm pronouncing those words right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just wondering. What is this effect and how does it impact your piece and your speciality subject as well?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a, kind of a funny, effect of a funny name. It's another association between certain sounds and certain properties. Um, so this is the finding that, well, if, if I told you that Maluma and Takiti were words in a foreign language for round and sharp and asked you which one is which, um, what might you guess? Um, Takiti sounds sharp to me. Yeah, totally. And that's that's basically the association that sort of across, across the world, um, though there have been a couple of exceptions. In, in many languages, people tend to make that association between sounds like m, l, n, and roundness, and ptk, and sharpness. So this is one association that can give rise to iconicity. If we think of a word like balloon, for example. It's a round thing, and it has these phonemes that are associated with roundness creating this kind of iconic link between its sound and its meaning
0: okay it seems to me that loads of my questions are actually taking very small segments of your paper and asking you to um to talk about them and unfortunately i'm going to do it again and ask you about this one piece where you describe or you tell us that in recent research arbitrariness and iconicity have been shown to exist on a spectrum So I'm just wondering what kind of prior research to this paper discussed these certain elements?
1: So sort of the dominant view in linguistics for a long time had been that language is arbitrary and that there are these couple of funny exceptions of words that are non-arbitrary, like automatopoeia. And I think it was this thinking that words fall wholly into one category or another. Um, But there's more of this shift in thinking now that a given word can have some arbitrary components and some iconic components. Um, So if we come back to the word teeny, for example, um, it'd be difficult to say that it's entirely iconic. Like if you didn't know anything about the word, I just said teeny, um, you might guess that it means something small, but um, that's not going to happen 100% of the time. So it's still to some extent arbitrary, even though it has some iconic elements. So that's that's what we mean by that, that um, a given word is going to be to some extent arbitrary, some extent iconic,
0: and fall somewhere in between those two extremes. Okay, and if we were to discuss the impacts of this particular paper, what do you think it could have in either the academic world or the real world? Yeah, so academically, I think
1: it contributes to this rising awareness that iconicity is a really important force in language. Um, And So far, we've just been speaking about spoken language, but of course, this extends to sign language, uh, and there's really sort of this groundswell of appreciation that iconicity is a, an important factor of language. And this paper, in our in our small way, contributes to this understanding by showing that you can explain some aspects of the structure of language based on this iconicity. And then more broadly, iconicity has implications for language development, for example. I, there are some studies showing that iconic words are easier to learn, are learned earlier. So there might be a way to leverage this for... Um, interventions, if there are difficulties in language learning, for example. And then in advertising, there's been a lot of work on how you can sort of come up with a product name that is a great match for the meaning or captures some desirable um, property in in the product that it refers to. Um, yeah, so those, those are sort of the two most immediate real world applications for this kind
0: of thing. Okay, and what was um, funding like? for this particular piece and your specialist area in general?
1: Yes, yeah, so I've been fortunate enough to have scholarships from the Canadian government at the federal level and then also provincial scholarships. And those are just some things that you apply for as as graduate students. So you, you're kind of chosen based on your publication record, your um, letters referenced, and of course, your research proposal. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to have some good scholarships throughout grad school and that's made it a lot easier because I've haven't had to take as many TA ships and I can focus more time on research. Um, So yeah, it's it's a a
0: big deal, I'd say. Okay, and what was the process like to get this piece published in the first place? Because obviously I speak to quite a few academics who appear on Research Radio and they give me different answers each time. Yeah, it was, uh, it was smoother than some some things we've had in the past.
1: Um, it went through one round of review. Um, I think there were three reviewers on it, and they were they were pretty happy with the changes we made they, to the suggestions they had. It was it was kind of an interesting process for this paper actually because so we submitted it, then we got a revise and resubmit back, and right when we got that, there was another paper published um, which was very similar to this. It, it showed um, part of the relationship that we tested. Um, and so at that point we kind of changed the paper. We were able to use more stimuli from the second paper that had come out and kind of incorporate some of their findings and some new analyses. So at first that was kind of a scary thing that happened, but it ended up being nice because we sort of made use of this new knowledge that was
0: now out there to make the paper better.
1: Yeah, but I'd I'd say it was a pretty smooth process for this paper, getting it published.
0: Okay, please um, don't think this next question is me deliberately trying to be rude. And so you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. But I'm just curious to know, what has been your worst experience with publishing so far?
1: Yeah, I mean, so early on, it's really tough not to take some of the comments to heart. Because um, this is sort of your baby, that's me, worked on for a year. And then to have it um, criticized, sometimes a little less tactfully than other times it it can hurt sometimes i think the worst was at one point we got a we got a comment saying something like we made conclusions that no reasonable human would think or 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 something like that Um, another one we were told this would make an excellent undergraduate project but it's not fit for publication those kinds of things hurt but um i don't know you just kind of take them in stride and take the paper elsewhere or, or you know change it a little
0: bit Wow, <laughs> that's um, um, I'm lost for words. That's just unnecessary.
1: Yeah, and for the most part, it's been pretty good. But of course, you remember the one or two really bad ones. Those definitely stand out in your mind.
0: Yeah, I guess the main thing you want is constructive criticism. Because what can you do with those comments? You know. Okay, so I've asked you that personal question. So I think it may be a good time to move on to the uh, more personal questions. A segment of the podcast and ask you who's been your biggest influence so far yeah I'd, I'd have to say my supervisor dr penny bexman
1: um so i've been working with her now for seven years and it's just been a great experience i, think I learned quite a bit from her and really look up to her as a researcher
0: yeah i can i can imagine because obviously um speaking with Alison herd who came on the uh, the podcast a couple of weeks ago she had only nothing but high praise for Penny Paxman too.
1: Yeah, I, I can't imagine a better supervisor, really.
0: Okay, and so how um, how do you normally spend your your week?
1: Yeah, um, so at the moment, I'm I, I'm not TAing, I'm not teaching, so I have I'm um, the the ability to sort of dedicate all of my time to research. So it's spent um, designing and programming new studies, analyzing the data from past studies, uh, writing up studies that that have been finished um trying to keep on top of the literature as best i can um learning new statistical techniques learning new statistical programs yeah yeah i guess those are
0: sort of the main things i do in a week okay that's really interesting and i want to probe you um a bit further with these uh reading papers and keeping up to date and ask you how much time do you normally spend doing this um so sort of in a week the number the um yeah weekly let's say weekly
1: yeah it, it kind of fluctuates so sort of, if, if i'm in the period of writing a paper then that's when i'm really going into the literature and doing research literature searches um but otherwise i sort of de- will depend on alerts to tell me when there's a new paper that's relevant um and i also get alerts for journals that are especially relevant so when, when a new issue comes out i'll sort of scan it for things that might be might be relevant
0: Okay, and so um, I'm going to ask you for some tips on increasing your own academic productivity. And obviously, this can be used in every aspect of anybody's lives, not just in academia.
1: Yeah, I have some that, that have worked for me. I've started using the Pomodoro technique a couple of years ago, and that's that's been really great for me, um, which is this idea that you sort of set a timer, you work for 25 minutes, and then when that timer goes, you have the option of taking a five-minute break or setting another 25-minute timer, and it kind of keeps you honest and it's nice because at the end of the day you can sort of count the number of um, work periods that you've had um, and then if you i tend to set a certain goal and try to hit that every day um i keep my phone in a different room that was a, a big one for me i have a an extension for my my internet browser that blocks certain websites during the day so i can't be on facebook or, or reddit or whatever being kind to myself uh, so it can be really hard. Writing can be really hard. Um, so not, yeah, sort of when things get hard, not getting too down on myself and knowing that the next day is going to be better or kind of taking a a long run view of things that if there are a couple of days where I struggled writing something that it doesn't mean it's going to be that way forever. In terms of writing, I like to start with a, a point form outline and then when I feel like that's been developed enough, I'll go in and sort of flesh it out. And then when I get stuck writing, I'll zoom back out to that point format line and work on it at that level. And then when I feel like that's to a certain quality, I'll zoom back in and write things out specifically. Yeah, I, those are those are the ones that come to mind, yeah.
0: Yeah, I really like this one because um, I did it myself during my undergraduate and my master's degrees. And it really did really did help.
1: Yeah, it does. It and it's really easy to hit a wall and then just keep paying your head against it for eight hours.
0: So yeah, it really helps. Yeah, even just going outside and taking a, a walk in the summer for five mi- five minutes, it just helps you to organize your thoughts and make everything so, so much clearer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So for moving back into your field, and obviously we had a, a really interesting conversation about your paper. So I'm just curious to know what topics are, are, are hot, so to speak, in your field right now. Yeah. um, So one, I think, is this idea of these
1: cross-language comparisons. I think for a long time, people had just studied these effects in a certain language, often um, a Western language. But I think now there's this move to look at how these effects differ across different languages. Um, So this Maluma-Takiti effect that we talked about a second ago, it was thought to be universal at one point, and it was talked about like that. But there was a paper last year, which talked about a couple of Cases that have failed to replicate it in a certain language. Um, These are languages that maybe weren't studied to a great extent in the past. And then what we can learn from those failures to replicate. Um, And then computational modeling, I I think, is starting to be applied to these kinds of questions with advancements in technique and, and technology and these kinds of things. Starting to appreciate insights from sign language. I think that for a long time, sign language and spoken language might have been kind of separated and people might not have thought that breakthroughs from sign language can be applied to language as a whole. But now there's more of a tendency to look at them as two um, as two kind of examples of the same phenomenon and
0: um, more crosstalk between the two. Okay, so if we go outside of your field, um, for you personally, what are you working on right now?
1: Yeah, I've got a couple of projects on the go. Um, we are doing a developmental study on the Maluma-Takiti effect, so testing kids at 4, 8, and 12 months and seeing when they start to show this association between these certain sounds and round or sharp shapes. Um, and then also seeing if experience in the environment starts to shape that. So we're, we're going to be giving them uh, round and not too sharp, but kind of pointy objects to take home and play with that'll be either given the congruent label, so maluma for round shapes or an incongruent label, so tikiti for round shapes, and then take a look at how that shapes those associations um, in infants. Um, we're looking, we also have a paper on the go, looking at how these associations between sound and meaning interact with grammatical gender in languages. Um, so in a language like French, of course, you can have a, a feminine or a masculine ending. And so, looking to see how that interacts with the sounds coming from the rest of the word. We have a study looking at iconic words and how they might be processed faster than non-iconic words by, by, the, by the average participant. We're working on a study looking at how these links between sound and meaning, uh, their implications for people's names. So we've found that people tend to associate um, more Maluma-type names with uh, personality traits like being agreeable and more takiti like names with traits like being extroverted so that's just that's a paper that we're currently working on
0: um so a lot, a lot of a lot of things around the same idea these links between sound and meaning wow okay it sounds like you've got your hands full definitely yeah yeah Yeah. okay for those undertaking a, a phd there's a, a question that i always like to ask them as well And that is your career aims or goals after you've uh, defended the PhD. What do you plan to do then? Yeah, so I'm
1: hoping to, my eventual goal is to find a a tenure track professor position. So the next step towards that is finding a postdoc. So I've applied for a scholarship for that and I'm waiting to hear back in February. And if that's successful, I'm going to, after I defend, move on to a postdoc position.
0: Okay, so um this could be my final question. And it's a question that I obviously ask everyone that comes on the uh, researcher radio. And that would be your one piece of advice for anybody that's now starting a PhD.
1: One piece of advice, okay. Um Okay. Um the one. Um I think choosing a topic that excites you is is very important. Because it's a hard road. There are a lot of ups and downs. But if you're genuinely interested in the topic and just thinking about the topic and reading about the topic excites you and makes you makes you happy, that's going to make it all a lot easier. It can become a slog when when you're not interested in the topic. Um, so, yeah, choosing something that you're genuinely interested in, I think, would be the main thing, I would say. Um, getting involved in a lot of different projects, I think, is a, is a good idea. We talked about bad reviews a second ago. It's, it's much easier to take a bad review on the chin if you have this other project that you can turn to um, in the meantime. Um, and then, yeah, just, just being kind to yourself, knowing that there are going to be ups and downs and not getting too down in the downs because knowing that it's going to be a long process and it's not going to be like that forever.
0: Um, yeah, those are those be the big ones that come to mind. Amazing. Thank you so much. So that's just all about time we've got for today on Researcher Radio. We've been joined by David Sidhu from the University of Calgary. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. And thank you for listening, everyone. Until next time. You've been listening to The Researcher Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. You can also follow us online at www.researcher-app.com or alternatively you can drop me an email at joseph.fenton at Researcher is free to use on iOS, Android, or on your web browser. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review.